Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to not one, but two places. Uh, I'm not going to preach the whole Bible today, but we're just going to cover a couple of sections. One of those is Jonah chapter 1. You can't do a series on Jonah without opening your Bible to Jonah. And the other is Matthew chapter 12, which my good friend Frank read from just a few moments ago. The story of Jonah is relatively familiar to most of us. As a matter of fact, I could probably walk through the story and let you fill in some blanks for me. Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh. He did not want to. So Jonah went to there was a, and he asked to be thrown. See, you guys know the story. That's just chapter 1. The weird thing about the story of Jonah, though, is that for us to really be able to walk through it, and for me to teach it, we almost have to unteach it. Because we've made this story so much about the whale, that, or the fish, or the sea monster, which we'll get to next week, that we're not sure what to do with what's actually there. That God has a word for his people from this passage. So much so that we can look at a picture like this. Because vegetables have taught us the story of Jonah. We get pictures like this. Now I can't decide if that whale is spitting out Conan O'Brien or Ed Sheeran or Ron Weasley. As he finishes his Egyptian holiday. But I look at that and I begin to think about the fact that there's this fair skinned little boy. Who's being spat up by a whale. And that has nothing to do with the actual story that we find in the Bible. The story of Jonah is one that is very familiar to us, and it's so familiar that it's unfamiliar. We see Jesus acknowledge the story of Jonah when we get, look into the Gospel of Matthew. As Frank read earlier, and I'll walk through for just a moment, some of the teachers, uh, in verse 38, some of the teachers of the law and the proud religious law keepers said to Jesus, Teacher, we would like for you to do something special for us. He said to them, The sinful people of this day look for something special to see. There will be nothing special to see but the powerful works of the early preacher Jonah. When we read that, because we read passages with headings, we miss what's actually taking place. Jesus is asked to do something special by these people for as a sign of his messianic nature he has already done two things to show his messianic nature. He has already cast out a demon and he has healed a man with a withered hand. And they were not interested in what God was actually doing. They were just interested in what they wanted. That's very much a window into the story of Jonah for us. That we would see that the idea of what God would actually do may not be what we're necessarily considering. We just want what we want. And we want to have that in the way that we want to have that. So we get to Jonah chapter 1 and we see this story. I'm going to read it over us and then we'll work through it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. And so Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. 
The sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. They, they threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and he'd stretched out and he'd fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call upon your God. Maybe this God will consider us. And we won't perish. Come on. The sailors said to each other, Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lots singled out Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? What is your country? What people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I, uh, I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What shall we do to you so the sea will calm down for us? But the, For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord. Don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you please. Then they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. They threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. And the men were seized by great fear of the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I hate to do things that I don't want to do. Uh, recently, uh, my kid's school started a cross-country team. And it's my son is another family's children and then there are these three middle-aged adults who show up to run and I happen to be one of them. We run for practice on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We are coached by Wes Caceres who is the fastest person I've ever known in person. And as we are going through this, we begin to get messages on GroupMe, which I believe is a punishment from the Lord. Like GroupMe really is a way the Lord reminds us that we're not in charge of things because you're always given someone else's schedule. And we were told about a cross-country meet in Alvin that started at 7 o'clock in the morning, but you had to be there to register by 6 which means we have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and me and, and my son Shepherd are going to drive to run this race. This race that I do not want to run. I don't want to have anything to do with this race. I want to avoid this race altogether. I want to go to Bucky's and get a burrito. I want to do anything other than run. And as we are headed toward the race, all that I'm thinking the entire time is, how do I avoid this? When you get there, you don't really get to avoid it. They hand you a number. That means you have to run. 
You have to pay to run. There's no way I was going to win this thing, and I believe that I should win everything. How am I going to do? So I created another competition altogether in my head. I began to look around the place and isolate the weak antelope. Who am I going to make sure that I'm in front of for the entirety of this run? And I eliminated some people quickly. If you were wearing spandex, I wasn't worried about you. If you were wearing a tank top, I wasn't worried about you. If you were wearing flashier sneakers than me, I was not worried about you. I was just worried about people that I could finish in front of in my head. If you were wearing bladed sunglasses, I was not worried about you. These are not the people I'm concerned with. My concern was, will I finish in front of children? Will I finish in front of that little old lady? Will I finish in front of that man with the walker? How I race in front of them? I begrudgingly run the race, finishing the race, doing everything I can to sprint out this 72-year-old woman. All the while doing what I don't want to do. Doing what you don't want to do. That's what Jonah is asked to do by God. These players in the story are very important to us. I don't want us to miss them. Because we miss these people in the story. We miss the goal of what God is trying to teach us from this passage. You have the person of Jonah. You have the men who are on the boat. You have the, uh, the people of the city of Nineveh. And you have this hatred between Jonah and these people. Uh, when you get to the, the city of Nineveh, it's so interesting. The person who founded the city, his name means rebel. When you look at the heart of the Ninevites, they were rebellious against this very idea of Yahweh God. But the most rebellious person in the entire passage, the person who is going to rebel against God, what God would have for him to do, is the person of Jonah. And we read the scripture, and we cannot miss, I, and we cannot miss what's actually taking place here. When you look at the story of Jonah, he is a familiar person. He's a name that we use. He's a name of people that we know. But when we read through the scriptures, we see there are nicer things said about the person of Lot. Jared and I had that conversation earlier this week. When you look at Jonah, he's in the same zip code of Judas. He's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, and he offers a true but short-sighted prophecy about Israel regaining pieces of land. He prophesied that Jeroboam would win a battle regaining territory on the northern border of Israel. And then Amos came along and said, yes, you prophesied that, but there's more to the story. Uh, Jonah was a Jewish nationalist. He would wear a MEGA hat. Jonah was uh, the rope kind. When he finally does go to do what God has told him to do, in Hebrew he offers a five-word sermon. And all that he says to a people who God has sent him to is this. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. There's no heart. There's no compassion. There's no mercy. In 40 days, you get wiped out. That happens to be the word for Nineveh from Jonah. It's very similar to when you tell your kids, go do something in another room and go let your brother or sister know about something and they yell from across the room. He could care less about Nineveh. He could care less about what's taking place in Nineveh. He could care less about what God would do in Nineveh. This is the time of the Assyrian reign we can't overlook what's taking place there. In history, Assyria is the most brutal superpower we can find. When you look at Assyrian artwork, 
you find that they, they were depictions of war, scenes of executions, impalements, beheadings, and the, fly, the flaying of skin of prisoners. They've been described by some commentators as ISIS with the comparable super, superpower of the American government. They squelched opposition by any means necessary. They, they took over the area called Ephraim. Ephraim tried to regain their independence. So the, city, the nation of Assyria sent everyone out as slaves. And they repopulated the place with Assyrians from around the world. In defeat of their enemies, one way that they would show and, and mock those they were in opposition to. They would cut off legs and they would cut off one arm in order to mockingly shake the remaining limb as their opponent died. Wicked people. They had mistreated the, mistreated the nation of Israel and they maybe, just maybe, had mistreated Jonah. He has a reason to be frustrated with them. But God told him to go. God told him to leave. Why in the world would Jonah run from God? Why would anyone run from God? Why would you think you could even run from God? Jonah ran from God. And spoiler, like I know that you know the end of the story. Well, I know that you know the end of chapter 3. No, Jonah's not concerned with how bad Nineveh is. His lack of doing what God tells him to do has everything to do with how good God is. The recurring uh, refrain of the Old Testament in regard to Yahweh is what we find in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That was mentioned last week by Josh. That, was, that we spent four weeks in, in the month of May. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful to, the, to his people. Punishing the wicked to the third and fourth generation, but forgiving to the thousandth generation. It had everything to do with how good God is. Jonah knows that there are some things at play in the nation of Nineveh that he does not want to ignore. That he, or rather, he would prefer to ignore. He knows he's not going to prophesy condemnation over these people. That's already been prophesied by Obadiah, by Amos, by, by Nahum. God has already said he's going to punish these people for their wickedness. Jonah realizes that if he happens to go, God is who God says he is. And there is a small possibility that they may turn around. Because God is good to wayward people. And He invites wayward people to walk with Him. To repent. Verse 3. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into, into it to go to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Where is Tarshish? We're not sure. I do know it's hard to say. Maybe it's in Crete near Greece. Maybe it's in Spain. The point is not where it actually is. The point is it's a long way from Nineveh and it's far, it is, is as far away as someone could get from actually doing what God had said. It's really far from being in the place that God has told him to be and doing what God has told him to do. Jonah has put his selfish desires ahead of what God would actually have for him. 
And it is selfish to put our personal selfish desires over the whole of what God would actually have and what God would actually do. Charles Spurgeon says this, We think that we do well to be angry with the rebellious, these people that we hate, maybe the Ninevites. And we prove ourselves to be more like Jonah than Jesus. Here's the thing about selfishness. Selfishness leads to godlessness, and that's not a long trip from one to the other. Verse 4, the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to, to break apart. A few words there. The, the word great has recurred already multiple times in this first chapter. It will recur over and over. It is intentional language used to display the immensity of what's taking place. It's hyperbole. It's, ex, it's exaggeration with intent. It is to make the point that these things are massive. Massive considerations for the people who are hearing. This passage is God looking at Jonah on a boat and hurling a storm toward him as if to say, caps lock, nope. Stop. You don't get to run from me. God threw the wind into the sea, it said. The word for threatened in that word, verse, it, it, where it talks about the ship. The word for threatened, the ship was thinking about. Now we know ships don't think. But the boat is about to explode there. Because the sin of Jonah is leading to difficulty. You don't have to be around long to realize that your sin and mine lead to difficulty. Every sin leads to difficulty. All sin, Tim Keller says, all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. You have Jonah running from God, trying to flee from the very presence of God. A God who is God of everything. I don't know how much this story is different than yours or mine that we would be told by God that there is something He would have us to do or someone, something that He would have us to be or something He would have us to care about. And we would say, nope. And in our continual life experiences, we sense the idea that God is hurling, throwing, calling us. We feel as if the world that surrounds us that we consider to be safety is breaking apart. He ran... But when he ran, he doesn't just run from God. He runs towards something. This is reverse repentance. Repentance is when we are, turn, we are turned toward our sin and then we turn toward God. Jonah's doing the exact opposite. He's a prophet of Yahweh. Someone called to speak on behalf of Yahweh. Yet he's running toward everything that he can run toward. We notice that he runs toward comfort in the passage. Something that we are more than likely to do. Because comfort is great. That's why it's called comfort. No, comfort food's delicious. We should never, we should never think about the, that that's a bad thing. The idea of comfortable things is good until we've made it bad. Jonah runs toward comfort. The sailors were afraid and each try, cried out to his own God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel. And he'd stretched out and he'd fallen into a deep sleep. In the midst of the chaos that surrounds him, Jonah goes to the deepest part of the boat. Why? Look, I'm no mariner. 
But I've been on one cruise. And what I understand about cruise ships is, one, you don't get on them right now. Two, two, in the midst of a storm, the place that rocks the least is the bottom of the boat. He goes deeper and deeper into the boat. As he goes deeper and deeper, he's going deeper and deeper into comfort to avoid chaos. How many difficult things do we as believing people in Yahweh ignore? Because we have chosen comfort over that. When we read through the story of Jonah, I just need to be clear. He is always the worst character at play. Always the worst. The the people who seem to align with Yahweh's actual desires in these passages are the pagans. Yet here's this Jonah who's supposed to be God's person who's doing anything but being God's person. The captain approached him and said, Ahoy! No, he said, What are you doing? What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God, and maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. That's what they've all been doing. Every foreign religion has been called to. Every religion represented, they've talked to that God and that God's doing nothing. They find Jonah sleeping at the bottom of the boat. Could you do something? Maybe your God's the one who's going to cover this. Verse 7, come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. I don't know what that really means. I'm assuming they're playing in my head. Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lots singled out Jonah. That's an awkward conversation. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? What is your country? What people are you from? What is your homeland? Where did you try to hide? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Nah? (laughs) He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. That sounds good. And for Yahweh followers, for Jesus people, our hearts swell up that you would acknowledge that. But if you know anything about Jonah, you say, huh? Claims to fear Yahweh... But there's nothing about this story that says he cares anything about Yahweh. I I worship the God of the heaven and the land? No, you don't. Acknowledging Yahweh and aligning with Yahweh are two very different things. Acknowledging Jesus and aligning with Jesus are two very different things. I love that you show up. I love that you're present. But if you are absent in real world situations, 
where the people of Jesus should be present, acknowledging Jesus, and actually being aligned with Jesus, are two different things. The men are seized by a great fear, and they said to him, What have you done? That's a great question. What have you done that this would be so bad? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them he'd already let them know. I, I, I'm, I'm going to Tarshish, not Nineveh, because I was told to go to Nineveh. God said, go here and do this. And I said, nope, going there and doing that. So they said to him, Why, what should we do to you so the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. Storm, hurl, boat, tossed about. He answered them, pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. That sounds like a good guy. Just throw me into the water. It'll be okay. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because they, the sea was raging against them more and more. It seems like Jonah's a good person until you realize the situation he's put these men in. For him to ask for them to throw him into the sea. He doesn't jump off himself. It puts the weight of their action on them. According to their religious traditions. He's not selfless. He's still incredibly selfish. If they toss him in, it's on them. And on top of that, if they toss him in... He has come to the realization that Tarshish probably isn't the place to go to escape from Yahweh's call. So rather than do what God would tell, has told me to do, I'll just die. I'll just die. How odd is it that someone would choose death than actually being obedient to God? I'll just die. So they called out, verse 14, Don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord... And we see this weird transition in the text about how God's at work even in the weirdest, strangest situations. Because they've been calling out to whom thus far? They've been calling out to... They don't name their God, but we can assume they've called out to Baal and, and Zeus and whomever else. I'm just naming gods now. Fake ones. But when you get to 14, they're not calling out to those fake gods anymore. The providential, provisional God of the Bible is acknowledged by these wayward pagans. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked Jonah up and they threw him into the sea and the sea stopped. And the men were seized by great fear of the Lord. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord and they made vows. Hey, we were following that thing, but now we're following you. And maybe, just maybe, this is the place where our hearts... See, Jonah, even in his stupidity, is doing good things. 
Maybe. But God's sovereignty does not negate His responsibility. God's sovereignty does not negate Jonah's responsibility no more than it does mine or yours. God will do what God wants to do? Absolutely. I will agree with you in completion about that. God will do God things because God's the only one who can do God things. But what He has called for from me and what He has called for from you, those do not change because He's providential. It may just say something about our lack of grasp of His providence. It may say something about how we are acknowledging Yahweh rather than aligning with Him. You get to this story and you see Jonah walking through everything that's taken place to him. And you notice, when you get to verse 17, rather when you get to verse 16, they, they threw him into the water and they offered up a sacrifice to the Lord. And then you get Jonah in 17, who thinks that the whole thing's over and now he'll just die. He's swallowed by a fish. And he's in the belly of said fish for three days and three nights. Taking us to a unique connection to a better story. Of the one who would rescue us by going through the deep, the depths and darknesses of death. But that doesn't mean the story has stopped being connected to you and to my behavior. I used to watch Survivor. I think they're on season 5011 now. And I can remember at one tribal council, as the last two people, I always felt like I should apply for Survivor, but I never did. Probably for the best. I told you about that foot race earlier. I can remember a conversation as they're interviewing the final two. And in the interview, one man says to the other, who has betrayed him? Because that's the point of the whole game, to betray someone. He said, you hurt me. And he said, I never intended to hurt you. And the person whom he'd hurt said, if I were judged by my intentions, I would be king of the universe. I don't, I'm not judged by my intentions. I'm judged by what I do. This story of Jonah is a message about me and you aligning ourselves with do we intend to align ourselves and acknowledge the message and the hope of Yahweh or are we going to act in response to it? This story is not just a message. It's a mirror that God is using. The actions of Jonah tell us things about Jonah that may contradict what he would verbally say with his mouth. The actions of Jonah tells that he hates his God and he hates people who are made in that God's image. And the intent of God when we read a story like this is for us to look into the story and wrestle with our actual affection for God. It's for us to look at the story and ask, in what ways am I running from God? In what ways am I distancing myself from actual obedience? What comforts am I choosing over Him? It calls us to ask ourselves, how do you really feel about your enemies? Your enemies? 
God uses a passage like this and we can, we can really just boil it down to a fish story for children. Or we can see that God uses this text to let us see ourselves as someone watching this unfold. In what ways are you running from God? In what ways are you distancing yourself from actually being obedient to Him? Are you choosing comfort over other things? How do you really feel about your enemies? Rebel prophet. What's this passage going to say to us about our rebellion? I want to pray for us. Father, we know as we read through the scriptures that there is one hero. And that hero is Jesus. The Bible's not about good people, it's about real people. Father, if there are any of us in here right now who do not have a relationship with you, Lord, we pray that we will hear your invitation. And that we will walk with you because of it. Choose you because you've chosen us. Love you in response to your love for us. Secondly, God, for those of us who are believers who think we've got everything figured out, would we see how much like Jonah we actually are? Would we see how our actions are putting on display the broken, sinful nature of the world? And would we respond by being obedient to who you would have us to be and how you would have us to be that? Father, teach us today again what it means for us to be people who who walk with you, who don't just say that we know you, but who walk with you. Who love our enemies because you seem to love our enemies. Who care for the world because you care for the world. Who acknowledge our own selfishness because you have shined a light on it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. The hero of the whole book. We stand together and we say...